If you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn in it to Genesis chapter 39, or if you have an electronic version, you know, do whatever you do to get to Genesis chapter 39. We're going to look at verse 1, and I want to welcome those who are listening to our podcast. Uh, We're in the third week of a series, if you're new here. uh, The third week of a series called The Legend of Joe Jacobson, which is, of course, a series about a man named Joseph, who was the son of one of the last of the three patriarchs of the nation of Israel, Jacob. So that's Joe, Jacob's son. And if you're new here, that's the kind of genius humor that you're going to hear on a regular basis here. Um, In our first week of the series, we saw that uh, Joseph's family, uh, at least his family heritage, was as or more dysfunctional than any family here this morning. There was deceit, there was hatred, Uh, There was all sorts of blended family issues that they were dealing with. There was jealousy. There was favoritism. And there was much more, actually, than that. Right? We saw that a few weeks ago. All of those things are running through the family line. And they go back several generations. And in addition to all of that, Joseph himself was an arrogant, uh, self-absorbed 17-year-old kid. And... That came as a result of his father's favoritism uh, toward him. And yet, in spite of all of this, what's fascinating is that in spite of all of that dysfunction and in spite of all that arrogance, Joseph was predestined by God for greatness. Now, it's so important that you realize that God didn't choose uh, Joseph because he was such a great guy. God chose Joseph because God, in his inscrutable wisdom, Wanted to choose him. That's it. Not because he was a great guy. It was just because God wanted to choose him. And that was it. And whatever Joseph looked like as a 17-year-old kid in terms of character and spiritual maturity, the process that God would take him through to develop him into the leader that he had chosen him to be would change Joseph into a markedly different man. And when we last left Joseph, he was in a deep, dark cistern. His brothers, fed up with his preening arrogance and full of hatred for him, had left him for dead. And the only thing, uh, they only changed their minds about leaving him for dead when they realized they could make a few bucks off of him by selling him into slavery to a band of slave uh, traders who were headed to Egypt in the opposite direction of Joseph's home and in the opposite direction of Joseph's family and in the opposite direction of everything that Joseph had known. Let's pick up the story at Genesis chapter 39. Let's start reading it at verse 1. Genesis chapter 39, uh, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had, 
With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Let me just stop there for a moment. And I want to point out three things very quickly that I think are worth noting as we try to understand this passage. First of all, notice that we don't have any idea how much time has passed. We don't know if it's been six months after he was sold into slavery or six years uh, that all of this has transpired. We just don't know how much time has passed. Second thing, regarding Potiphar, um, I want you to understand who this guy was. A Jewish historian by the name of Alfred Edersheim says that uh, the captain of the guard, which is what Potiphar was, the captain of the guard was the chief executioner. Get that. He was the chief executioner of Pharaoh's administration. So he was nobody uh, to fool around with. This guy had power over life and death. Okay? That's who Potiphar was. Now, third, I want you to understand uh, the level of Joseph's responsibility because the word that the NIV uses here to describe his role really doesn't give uh, doesn't give it the amount of credit that it deserves. It says that he was an attendant. Well, understand that Potiphar had given Joseph everything in his personal life. Joseph served as his lawyer, his accountant, his estate manager, all of that wrapped up into one, which is an enormous amount of success, an enormous amount of privilege, and frankly, an enormous amount of power for a slave. Now look at the last part of verse 6. Excuse me, look at the uh, yeah, last part of verse 6. Genesis chapter 31, uh, verse 6, last part of it. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Does that seem like it comes out of the middle of nowhere? He was well-built and handsome. What it's trying to do is to help us understand that this is not only a successful guy, not only a smart guy, not only a very good uh, businessman, but he's also uh, a stud. I mean, he's also hot uh, from a woman's perspective. He's hot. Just want to make sure we get that clear. And uh, verse 7, And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. If you've ever heard this uh, passage taught before, you have probably been taught that this passage is about sexual temptation. And that, and uh, it may well involve sexual temptation, but that is not the primary issue that's going on here. Something else that's happening here that is not obvious at first glance. And I want to start with an unseen character in this passage. I want you to remember now that Joseph is the rescue plan for Israel. We know that from his dreams that he'd had. If you've been with us, Joseph had a couple of dreams early on. And those dreams said, in those dreams, they were given by God. They were prophetic dreams. And in those dreams, Joseph uh, everyone in his family is bowing down to him. And so we sort of know from that that Joseph is the rescue plan for the nation of Israel. There's a famine coming. And Joseph is going to be the one who's going to save the family. And beyond that, I want you to remember now 
that the Messiah is going to come through this family. So if this family isn't rescued from, the, from this famine, there's no Messiah and ultimately no hope for the world. Now let me ask you, who would want Joseph to get crossways with the executioner of Egypt? Who? Well, of course, yeah. Satan. Of course he would. And so Satan uses Potiphar's wife. He throws her at Joseph. Now, just want to say one thing. I, I, I'm just going to throw this out, okay? I want you to notice, it's very interesting to me, that the text never describes Potiphar's wife. It does describe Joseph. It says he was, he was a real looker, right? I mean, that's what it says. But it never describes Potiphar's wife. Never says that she was, you know, gorgeous, hot, a trophy wife. Never says anything about her other than what she does. Now, I just want to make that point because many of you are so used to looking at this passage through the grid of sexual temptation because someone told you that that's what this passage is about that you may never have considered she might have been, re- she might have been really homely. You know? Maybe that's why Potiphar never seems to be around in this story. We don't know for sure. Maybe Joseph really didn't have to think twice about this. You know? It was like, nah, thank you, not, not going to do it. I don't know. Okay, But... I'll, you know, I'll play along, okay, because that's the way it is normally taught, and, and, and it's probably safe to assume that she was a trophy wife since, since Potiphar was a powerful, wealthy guy. The reason I mention to you, really the reason I mention it, is, is I want to remind you not to take for granted, when you read a passage like this that you've read before or that you've heard before, never take it for granted that you know what it's about. Come at it with fresh eyes, okay? All right. Either way, whether she's hot or not, I want you to notice that the person Satan is using in his attempt to foil God's plan is a person who uses power for selfish gain. In other words, the habits of her heart have been corrupted by the power uh, that she lives in. It's really fascinating here because when when she notices Joseph, the way the NIV translate this, translates this, it says, it says that she says, come to bed with me. But, but the Hebrew, which is what this passage was originally written in, the Hebrew actually really, means, uh, really reads more like this. It really me- reads more like, hear sex now. What do you think about that? It's like she's saying, hear sex now. Very aggressive. And very demanding and frankly very assumptive. This is a woman who is used to using her power to get what she wants, even if it meant the betrayal of her husband and even if it means endangering Joseph's life. That's what this passage really is about. It's about power and how you use power. Let me just point out that the abuse of power seems to be one of the primary strategies that Satan uses um, throughout the Bible to try to foil God's plan. It's one of the primary strategies that he uses. And I think the most notable example of that occurs in the New Testament when Satan is allowed to tempt Jesus in the desert after 40 days of 
of prayer and fasting. And Satan tries three different ways in that, uh, in that story, in that passage. He tries three different ways to get Jesus to use his power to shortcut the suffering that he would have to endure to rescue humanity. Three different times he tries to do that. Just, just, just use your power, Jesus, to shortcut all of this suffering that you're experiencing and that you will experience. Just, just shortcut that. I mean, you don't have to go to the cross. You know, that's, that's, that's the strategy that he uses. And he uses it throughout the Bible. Do you know why Satan uses that strategy so frequently? It's because he knows that it's the instinct of the human heart to abuse power. It's, not like, it's, it's like it's not really a hard temptation. It's not really very tough. Most people are going to do it. It's the instinct of the human heart to abuse power. How many politicians? How many CEOs? How many pastors? How many wealthy athletes have fallen prey to the abuse of their power? I've been reading this. Um, in fact, I just finished it. This riveting book. And I would highly recommend it to you if you, have it, if you like to read. It's called uh, Unbroken by a woman by the name of Laura Hillenbrand. Anybody read that book? Nod your head. Yeah, a few people? Good. It's about a former Olympic distance runner named um, Louis Zamperini who was lost at sea in the South Pacific during World War II and then he was captured by uh, the Japanese and he was kept as a POW for two years. And there's a significant portion of this book that's devoted to the absolutely inhumane treatment of the prison guards and the camp commanders who had power over Louis uh, for, two year, for the two years that he was imprisoned. It's an incredible book. And what it demonstrates really is just, again, the instinct of the human heart to abuse power. And the abuse of power has been the cause of a great deal of pain and suffering and division throughout human history. And that's what's happening here. That's what this passage is about. In fact, it's fair to say that the overarching strategy that Satan uses to foil God's plan is to get Joseph to use his power selfishly. In other words, to take advantage of the position and the privilege that he'd been given, as well as his physical appearance, appearance, all of which constitute power, and to use it for selfish purposes. Now, in this specific instance, it's about using power to satisfy sexual desire. And and we're going to talk about that. Uh, In fact, we're going to talk about it next week at some length. This is really kind of a two-part sermon, really. But what I want you to see and what I want you to think about today is the overarching issue of using power selfishly. Potiphar's wife is a willing participant in this scheme. But I want you to notice Joseph's, excuse me, Joseph's response to this temptation. The text says it very simply, three words, but he refused. But he refused. And actually, I will tell you that when I read that, I think it's very stunning that Joseph refuses to use his power in this way. Uh, I think it's very stunning. And I wonder how you would explain 
Joseph refusing to use his power in this way. I want you to think about it for just a minute. Again, the natural instinct of the human heart is to use power selfishly, to abuse power. That's the natural instinct of Joseph's heart. It is everybody. It's yours. It's the natural instinct of my heart to abuse power. But in addition to that, Joseph is in the situation that he's in because of a long string of people who've used their power over him for their own selfish purposes. His dad used his wealth to favor Joseph because he was the child of his favorite wife. And he did so at the expense of Joseph's well-being and at the expense of Joseph's relationship with his brothers. His brothers used their collective physical power over Joseph to sell him to slave traders. The slave traders used their power over Joseph to sell him to Potiphar. Potiphar used his power over Joseph to make him a slave. And now Potiphar's wife is using her power to demand sex and to jeopardize uh, his well-being. And don't forget, earlier in Joseph's life, he used the power of those two dreams that he'd been given, uh, those two prophetic dreams. He used that power to exalt himself over his entire family. He abused power early in his life. Now, given all of that, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been perfectly natural? Wouldn't you expect for Joseph to say, I have power and I'm going to use it to give myself a little pleasure here in the midst of my slavery. In the midst of my misery, I'm going to use my power just to get a little pleasure. Wouldn't you expect him to do that? And yet he doesn't. How do you explain that? How do you explain it? I can't think of any way to explain it except this is a sign of God's grace in his life. The curriculum that God has had for turning Joseph into the great leader that he is going to be. The leader who's eventually going to mount a massive hunger relief program that will save tens of thousands of people and that will keep the messianic hope alive. God's curriculum for turning Joseph into that great leader required that Joseph, let me say it this way, here's what it required, that Joseph unlearn, that Joseph unlearn the instinct to use power selfishly. And the only way that that could happen was for Joseph to experience personally the abuse of power And the pain that it brings. Believe it or not. All of the suffering that he's been through already. Was God's grace in his life. And God's grace we can already see. Is supernaturally. Overcoming the natural instinct of Joseph's heart. To use power for selfish purposes. It's already begun to change him. I I know what you're thinking. We talked about this a little bit last week. It would be very nice, wouldn't it, if God could have just... If God could have just told him, Joseph, don't use power selfishly. But people don't usually change just because they're told to change. They don't, in fact, not only do they not usually change, even if they do try to change, they really don't change internally. They change externally, but not internally. 
They may, they may do what you tell them to do because they're afraid to disappoint you or they're afraid to get in trouble, but they don't really change internally to become the kind of people who really do want to compassionately use power as opposed to selfishly use, using power. I mean, if you think about it, the Bible, you know, God's given us the Bible. He's already told us to change, and then yet look at the world. Look at the mess the world is in. If, 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 if you could just tell a person to change and have them really change internally... God would do that, but he uses these painful experiences in Joseph's life to change him into a man who sees and uses power differently. just want to make this point that the people God uses are people who use power counter-instinctively. In other words, They use power for others' benefit, not their own. Let me say it again. The the people that God uses are people who use power counter-instinctively for others' benefit, not their own. And by the way, I I just want you guys to see something here. And when we talk about the people that God uses, I want you to notice that Joseph is not a pastor. He's not a priest. This man that God is going to use so powerfully... Really, if you boil it all down, he's a very successful businessman. And what he's going to become in the future is a very successful governmental leader. And I say that because I think that there are many people who think that if you're going to, uh, if you're going to be used by God, if you're going to be used by God to advance his program, well, you've got to be a pastor. You've got to be a priest. And I'll tell you something. One of the reasons for that, one of the reasons you believe that is that there are a lot of pastors who would like for you to think that. What I want you to see is that God wants, you, God wants to use you to advance his purposes in your field and in your sphere of influence, whatever that is. You don't have to become a pastor to be greatly used by God. Joseph was not, and he was used greatly by God. And I know that there are many of you who would say, well, you know, okay, I... Yeah, okay, people that God uses are people who use power counterinstinctively and all that. But you would say... Uh, I don't, have, I don't have any power. I have no power. And I would say, you're wrong about that. You do have power. Everyone has a certain amount of power. Your power may be parental power. Your power may be intellectual power. Your power may be financial. you are just got a lot of money. Your power may be in your appearance. You may be very attractive. You may be an employer over people. You may be a trusted employee. You may be a teacher. You might even be a lawyer. And yes, God can use even lawyers, believe it or not. He can do that. Everyone has power to some extent. And God wants to use you in whatever context you're in. With whatever power you have, he wants to use you. If you would catch a vision this morning for using your power to bless other people rather than abusing it and using it selfishly. Now let me give you some examples of how it's often used selfishly in just everyday life. How many men have used their success 
to sleep with a co-worker or an intern or a younger, impressionable woman who is attracted to their power, their success. And how many families have been ruined by that abuse of power? And how many women have used their attractiveness, their sexuality, their sensuality to lure a man, even a married man, and destroyed a family in the process? Uh, How many girls have used, um, or young women, have used um, sexting, pictures, their power to get a man, a guy, to pay attention to her? How many guys have slept with a girl that he's not married to as an abuse of his power? How many men have physically abused wives as an abuse of power? How many many women have used tears to manipulate the men in their lives as an abuse of power? Let me tell you something, ladies. You have incredible power with the tears. It is an amazing thing, the tears, and how that can just completely stop down a guy. How many women have used their tears to manipulate a man? How many employers have refused to hire someone of a specific race because they don't, they just don't want to hire those kind of people? How many people have practiced racism in general? How many people have used all of their financial power on themselves and not invested in people or worthy causes? That's an abuse of power. See, that's the way of the world. To use whatever power you have for yourself. But the people that God uses are people who have been touched by grace. And who have learned to use power counter-instinctively for other people's benefit and not their own. People who by grace do what Joseph has done here. And that is refuse to abuse their power. Think about how the world would be different if men said, I will never use my success, my power, to sleep with a co-worker or an intern or a young, impressionable woman. Think about how the world would be different if women said, I will never use my sexuality to lure a man, um, a married man, and destroy a family in the process. Think about how the world would be different if girls didn't sext and send pictures Think about how the world would be different if guys said, I'm not going to sleep with a girl I'm not married to, because that would be an abuse of my power. How would the world be different if men said, I'm not going to beat my wife. I I will never hit a woman. How would the world be different if women said, I'll never use my tears to manipulate. How would the world be different if, 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 if people said, I will never practice racism. I will never discriminate on the basis of race. How would the world be different if people said, I'm not going to just spend all of my money on myself. I'm going to invest in people. And I'm going to invest in worthy causes. How would the world be different? What I want you to understand is that that is what the local church has been called to do. It's what believers in Jesus Christ have been called to do. That's the picture of what God wants to do in the context of his people. People who've been changed radically by grace. And as such, refuse to use their power for selfish purposes. But they use it to benefit other people. 
And may I point out that one of the great travesties of the local church is the tendency for people in it to use their power selfishly, even in the context of their church. Like to become very self-centered, to spend time griping about music and carpet and clothes and personal preferences, rather than using their power to benefit the city in which they live. And I will tell you that that's... It's very easy for a church to get sucked into that. And that's why we have stated clearly in our mission statement, our vision statement, that what we want to be about is using our collective power as a church counter-instinctively to benefit the city of Evansville and the surrounding community. That's why our strategy, you see these, you see these banners along the side of the wall. They start with believe, believe in Christ, uh, experience community, unlearn. And then they all end with change the city. Because we want to be about using the power that God has given us to change the city. And I will tell you that in just the first year of our existence, we have used our power in that way. Um, We have an alliance. You guys know this. We have an alliance with Community One. We rebuilt a home in the community. We have a relationship with Lincoln School. We've been trying to invest in the teachers and the the students, and even the families there at the Lincoln School. We've got this ministry called Second Chances where we help people that have been incarcerated. Um, we help them sort of just um, reintegrate themselves back into society. We, had a, we just had a, a woman in another city uh, this last week who sent us uh, an email and just said that her son is incarcerated locally and, and he's about to be released, and she asked, could we help him? And I thought it was so neat that somebody from another city already has heard about the impact that City Church is having through our Second Chances ministry. We just adopted. Yeah, please, go right ahead. We just adopted gardens at the uh, Shirley uh, Shirley James Gateway Events Plaza. And, And, you know, we're doing weeding and watering and mulching and planting, and we're doing this at the request of the mayor's wife. And in fact, we signed an official agreement with the uh, Department of Parks and Recreation to do this because the mayor's wife asked us to do it because she had seen us out on another project, the Clean Evansville project. She'd seen us there and asked if we'd be willing to take over and do that. Yes, we would, we said. And we are willing to do that because that's what we're here for. A few weeks ago, we had a bunch of volunteers, as I said, that were picking up trash at the Clean Evansville Initiative. We're trying to use our collective power as a church for other people's benefit. And and I want to tell you something. Next week, we're going to tell you about a huge way that we're going to use our power to benefit the city of Evansville, the surrounding communities. And I'll tell you something. I really believe that it's going to benefit a lot of other cities and a lot of other towns Uh, around the area, maybe even in the whole tri-state area, maybe even further than that. It's big, it's audacious, and it's huge. And I would love to tell you now, but I don't want to spoil the anticipation of you waiting another week to find out what this is. But I will tell you this. Tell your friends, wake your neighbors, because City Church is about to blow the top off the city of Evansville. But that's next week. I'll tell you next week. Here's what I want you to know. People that God uses are people who use power counter-instinctively for other people's benefit, not for their own. And that's what this story is about. It's what Joseph is learning to do. Now, next week I'm going to speak at at some length about sexual temptation. So I'm going to reserve my comments about that till then. 
Now, some of you are probably thinking, I don't want to hear the Bible's view of sex. But then again, we have the big announcement next week, so you really can't miss next week. And you see how I did that? You see that? They don't give churches to dummies. I'll tell you that right now. I want to close this morning. I want to close you this morning by pointing you to the one whom Joseph was intended to point us to. The Lord Jesus Christ. The promised Messiah. Who when tempted by Satan refused to use his power to escape the suffering that was necessary to rescue the world. Even though he had all the power necessary. In fact, he had all the power to create the world. He used his power to create the world. Even though he had all of that power, he refused to use it to avoid a Roman cross and instead suffered for the sins of humanity. And I would just like to say that in a day and age like the one that we live in now, where power is idolized and deified. The one who changed the world did so by refusing to use his power to save himself and thereby saves those who would believe upon him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who this passage is about, the one who is my savior, the one who is the savior of many people here, and the one who would be your Savior at this very moment if you would ask him to do so. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? And if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, this would be a good time to do so. It is the message of the Bible that God created the world out of his pleasure, and he created it perfectly. It is also the message of the world that the reason that the world Excuse me, it is also the message of the Bible that the reason the world is in the mess that it is in is because humanity rebelled against God. The Bible calls it sin, and it says that I'm a sinner. The Bible says that I, Jeff Kincaid, am a sinner, and it says that everyone is a sinner. It says that you're a sinner. And the Bible also says that the only way to deal with that sin, the only only way that that sin can be forgiven is through the blood that was shed of one who never sinned. And his name was the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on a cross for the sins of humanity, for your sins, for my sins. He was raised again from the dead as proof that he was an acceptable sacrifice for the sins of humanity. Now I want you to think about this, that there is no other religion that claims that the leader of that religion suffered and died For the sins of his people. None. Only Christianity. I want you to understand that what this Savior did for you. Was that he refused to use the power that he had available to him. To escape the suffering of the cross. And he did it not because he. There was. Not because he was one of the many possible ways. That you could have eternal life. But because he was the only way. That you could have eternal life. If you have never placed your trust in him, this would be a good time to do so. It begins with simply an acknowledgement. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. There is no other way that I can be saved apart from you, Lord Jesus Christ. Be my savior. It's that simple. And if in the privacy of your seat, 
That's something that you want to do. The Bible says that the Lord Jesus Christ will inhabit your heart. And by his grace, he will begin to change you into the kind of person that he can use in whatever sphere you're in, whatever role you play in life, he will use you as part of his plan. Lord Jesus Christ, for those here who may never have come to that place, I pray right now that through your power that you would bring them to that place. Lord Jesus Christ, we worship you. We praise your name because you and you alone would use power in the way that you use it. Not for yourself, but for us. We worship your name. We ask that you would change us by your power into the kind of people who would also use whatever power that we have counter-instinctively for the benefit of others and not for ourselves. We want to be a church that is sort of a, just a little, almost like a little advertisement of what, of what the world can be and what your future kingdom is going to look like. Would you transform us into that kind of church? And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray.